Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I don't know how many of you knew this, but it's actually Reformation Day, Reformation Sunday. It's a day in the church calendar uh, that has historically been set aside where we remember the significance of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, you probably thought it was Halloween, right? And it is. Uh, but we remember on the church calendar on October 31st or whatever's the last Sunday of October, we remember how on October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he nailed 95 grievances that he had against the corruption in the church at the time. 95 grievances on the castle door in Wittenberg. So you could say like he invented the rant long before Facebook, right? 1517. Uh, and this 
sparked the recovery of the gospel all around Europe. The church had been corrupted, but through the Protestant Reformation, the gospel was sort of lit, a fire lit ablaze. Uh, it was recovered. Just the purity and beauty of the gospel was recovered around Europe, which led to this amazing season of revival, of awakening, of spiritual renewal. I mean, we would not have uh, uh, art and music and a lot of the many things that we enjoy in Western culture without the significant impact that the Protestant Reformation had in that century. And we're going to talk more about the Reformation in a little bit, but first I want us to think about one of the questions that I think marks just general spiritual renewal in God's people. And I think when we think of that term, spiritual renewal, this idea that we are spiritual beings, right? That we have a soul, that we have a spirit, and that we long for that to be renewed and refreshed. I think that's something that we can, we can all admit that we long for. Spiritual renewal in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our homes, in our communities, and in our church. So I want us to think about one of the questions that marks spiritual renewal in God's people. If you want spiritual renewal in a place, you need to know the Bible's answer to this question. And that question is, who can stand? Who can stand? And what we mean by that is when Jesus returns, which he will, and what he's fully revealed in all his glory and all his majesty and all his splendor when every human being is going to stand before judgment from Jesus, who can stand? Who can stand? I mean, what's more terrifying than like Freddy Krueger or, or Michael Myers or Pennywise or, or like any demon-possessed antagonist from like the last like horror flick that you watched, right? Like what's more terrifying than all those things combined is the wrath of the Lamb of God. And we need to be able to answer the question, how is it that any of us can stand? How can any of us stand? And that very question is the question that's left ringing in our ears at the end of Revelation chapter 6, which we looked at last week. And what we find is that the entire chapter of, of chapter 7, all the verses of chapter 7 are dedicated to answer that question, who can stand? And so let's go ahead and dive right into the text. I'll give you my first point right here, it's that those who stand in the judgment are sealed with the Spirit. Those who stand in the judgment are sealed with the Spirit. Read verses 1 through 3 with me of Revelation 7. John says, after this, after the vision that he saw of the fifth seal and the sixth seal opening where the judgment of God comes down, he says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, 
These verses here are describing the judgment that is happening throughout history at the hands of the four horsemen. You guys remember those from a few weeks ago? The four horsemen, uh, but it's, it's describing that same judgment from like a different angle, all right? Saying that before judgment falls, there's going to be a group of people that are sort of set aside, set aside and marked to be protected. And on the days that judgment falls down, you're either sealed for safety or you're left to be destroyed. And the difference will be, what marking do you have? What marking do you have? Now, I want you to remember that Revelation, the book of Revelation as a whole, is using lots of symbols, all right? Lots of symbols, a lot of prophetic imagery here. And so you need to understand that he's not talking about a physical mark, all right? A lot of people, a lot of like Bible scholars even, or, or like, like out in media and pop culture, when you talk about like the marks of people, like in the book of Revelation, like they, they usually depict it as a physical mark. But if we're reading Revelation rightly, in light of the whole of scripture, we understand that this is just a symbol, all right? It's not a physical mark. If a physical mark was all that required, then we wouldn't have like missions and evangelism and church planting, right? Like if just a physical mark was all that was required to, to, to seal people, to mark people either from being on this side or that side, right? Then we wouldn't have evangelism. We wouldn't have planted this church. I would have just started like a tattoo shop, right? Which, I mean, wouldn't, I don't know, it might be cool. But <laughs> this symbolic imagery that we have of a marking, it actually comes to us from the Old Testament, all right? It comes from Ezekiel chapter 9. And I've mentioned this before in our, our, our series on Revelation, but I, I do need to mention it here again, that you cannot understand the book of Revelation without looking to the Old Testament first, all right? I mean, there's been some of us that have been tricked by American evangelicalism in this cultural moment over the last century, right, to think that if we want to understand Revelation, what we need to pay attention to is who's at war with who, right? What are the current events happening? What are, what are just the, the different political turmoil that's happening around, around, around the world? But if we want to be humble before the scriptures, we understand that revelation can never mean anything for us that it never meant for its original audience back then, okay? And so when it comes to the book of Revelation, the Old Testament is actually where we look to make sense of the numbers of years. It's where we look to make sense of the imagery and the symbols and things like that. And the Old Testament becomes sort of like the guardrails in a bowling lane. Right? Like if you don't know your Old Testament, and if you don't have those Old Testament symbols in mind, then you're going to go off the rails and end up in an entirely different lane that you shouldn't be in. And that's how you get some Christians calling Moderna and Pfizer the Antichrist, right? The vaccine's the mark of the beast, right? And they're trying to look through, like, the different medical journals for, for evidence of, like, 666, right? Like, it's just the, the actual, you know, you've heard about that number, the mark of the beast, right? It's like, no, man, that stuff's supposed to be symbolic. 
You're not going to see the actual number 666. That number means something uh, uh, symbolically. And just to be clear, again, like just to be clear, because I have to, I don't, I don't care where you land, like on your, your, your take on, on vaccines in general or this vaccine in particular. But the reason that I mention these things is that I want you to understand that to impose our cult, current cultural controversies to impose our 21st century cultural controversies, impose those on the prophetic scriptures is careless and downright arrogant, all right? These things are symbols. And how we make sense of Revelation 7, if we want to know how to make sense of that, we see clear clues in Ezekiel chapter 9, all right? In Ezekiel chapter 9, we're not going to read it because we don't have time, right? My kids want to go trick-or-treating. And uh, God gives Ezekiel this vision in Ezekiel 9. What happened is that he's, he's transported in a vision. He's transported Ezekiel to the temple in Jerusalem, the place where worship happened. And when he's there in this vision, he sees, he looks around the temple and he sees idolatry. He sees God's people compromising, right? Like a little worship of God here, a little bit of worship of this God over here, a little worship of God over here, a little, a little, you know, like following sex, money, and power over here. And people, he sees in this vision, he sees people are turning their backs on God. Pastors, elders in, in the, the, the temple of Jerusalem are worshiping the gods of the culture uh, in the temple. And what we see is that in response to this tragedy happening in Jerusalem, in response to that, God commissions these angels to execute his judgment on the city. But before he does, he instructs one of his angels in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, to, he says this, it'll be up on the screen. He said, it's passed through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Now we see here, and this is just one spot, but if you read the whole chapter, you see there are many parallels between uh, Ezekiel 9 in the Old Testament and Revelation 7, where we're at this afternoon in the New Testament. And when you look at these parallels, what you see is that the point of these passages is that just before a season of judgment comes down uh, that could affect the people of God, the true people of God, those who really belong to him, who genuinely belong to him, the people of God are marked by God. They're sealed so that they don't end up sharing and suffering in the judgment that is going to fall. I want you to notice how he describes true believers from that passage. He says that they're men and women who mourn over abominations that are committed around them. In other words, they have the decency to know what sin is and what sin isn't. They have the decency to know what sin is, and when they see it, they mourn over it. They're heartbroken over it, especially, especially when we see it in ourselves. Now, how does that happen? 
How is it that somebody comes to mourn over sin? Over sin, especially when you see it in yourself or in the people around you. Ephesians 1 tells us. This is Paul speaking to Christians in Ephesus. He says in him, speaking about Jesus, he says in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so what Paul says in the New Testament there in Ephesians 1 is that the seal of the Christian is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is the guarantee of our inheritance. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes sure that we stay persevering in our walk with the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the one who seals the Christian. What he does is he shows you more and more that you are actually in a real relationship with God and that that relationship with God is real and he reveals that to you by making you more and more like Jesus. That over time you begin to love the things of Jesus and the things of, of the kingdom more and more and you begin to love the things of the flesh and the world less and less. That's what the seal of the Christian is. The Holy Spirit, it shows you that your relationship with God is real when he's at work in you. That's one of the purposes of a seal even today, right? Like on a diploma, to show a sign of authenticity, a sign of the genuineness. If you mourn over your sin, which is anything that is an offense to the God who made us, the God who knows what is ultimately true, what is ultimately good, and what is ultimately beautiful. If you mourn over those things, then that shows that there are real roots in the spiritual soil of your heart. And just to be clear, that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that we don't fail, all right? That doesn't mean that we don't fail. It doesn't mean that, that there's only perfection in the Christian life. Because the Bible also says that we will fail. But the point is that we don't put our hope in our failing hearts. What we do is we put our hope in no one but Christ and in nothing but Christ. There's this growing familiarity that we do have with Jesus. I heard this story just recently. Um, This pastor, PJ Smith, I think he's from, uh, he's either like, South Africa area or Australia, um, somewhere where like they speak English but differently than we do, right? That's not London. Right? So it's like one of those. I can't, I couldn't, I can't exactly pick up where it's from. But um, PJ Smith, uh, he he's this this pastor, and he's um, he tells a story about how on 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 a cruise uh, that he went on, there was like this this famous voice actor. Right, that uh, he was just known for his performances. He was known for his uh, recordings, and when people found out, like, oh my God, like that guy's on the ship, right? They like people started uh, approaching him and saying, you know, like, like perform, like, like he's a jester or something, right? Perform for us, jester, right? Like, do 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 something, do something fun, like put on a show, right? Like, like show us, show us what you got. 
And so he, he, get, he, he, he walks up like outside by the pool and he starts just reciting. Uh, I don't know why I said it that way. Reciting. Right? <laughs> he starts reciting Psalm 23. All right? Right? He starts reciting Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, one of the most famous psalms of the scriptures. And he does it like pausing at all the right moments. Right? His... The, 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 this, his voice inflection is just like really emotional and moving and he's drawing people in and people are just like, wow, like that was, man, that was, that was amazing, right? Like it, it was only six verses. He had the whole thing memorized though and he just like wowed everybody and then um, um, people are like patting him on the back. They're talking about the performance, talking about how great his voice is and then uh, this little old, uh, little old lady um, comes up to him and encourages him and tells him like how much that, that song has meant to her and how she's memorized it decades before and, and, and that it, it just meant, means so much to her that, that he performed it. And he asks her, he says, um, like, well, would you, like to, would you like to perform it for us? And she's like, ah, oh, I don't know. Like, and he's like, oh, come on, do it. And she's like, ah, oh, shucks, like, all right. So, so she gets up there like, by the pool, and, and she grabs the mic, and she recites Psalm 23. She's never done anything like this before, so her um, palms are sweat, you know, knees weak, palms sweaty. Um, and he, uh, uh, if you know, you know. Um, and he, uh, and, or she's like really nervous, uh, and... Uh, she starts tripping on her words, starts stuttering a little bit, and it, it's kind of awkward, right? Uh, and, it's, and it's so awkward that, I mean, this, after when she's done, you know, she puts the mic down, like somebody goes up to uh, the, the, like the voice actor guy and says, oh man, like, I don't know, what'd you, what'd you think of, what'd you think of that? What'd you think of her performance of Psalm 23? And the thing is that this actor, he wasn't actually a believer. Like, he grew up in the faith, but he wasn't an actual believer. And he, and he tells this guy that. You know, he's like, you know, here's the thing. He's like, I, I know Psalm 23. He's like, I've recited it many times, at things like this. Apparently, that's what they do, right? He's like, I, I know Psalm 23. He's like, but that woman, she knows the shepherd. She knows the shepherd, and that's, and that's more significant. You see, the... This, this, this walk that we have with the Lord and having the Holy Spirit as a seal doesn't mean that we don't fail. It doesn't mean that there's only perfection. But it means that, man, we know him. We know the shepherd. And when we sin, it grieves us. And when we see more of his truth, more of his goodness, more of his beauty, it woos us. It draws us closer to him. There's this growing familiarity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Another purpose of the seal is to protect, right? I mean, that's the picture that we have in Revelation 7, right? Put the seal on their foreheads so that they, they won't be uh, hurt, so that they won't suffer at the judgment. It means that you can't tamper with what's under the seal, right? It means that the sufferings of this world can't crush you if you have the seal of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that you won't suffer. It doesn't mean that you won't go through hard things, but those hard things won't crush you. They won't destroy you or eliminate you. It means the peer pressure that you get from family and friends who, who maybe jest you for your faith, 
that, that can't pull you from his grip. It means that your, your failures can't determine your future. The mercies of Christ do. Evil and suffering don't determine your destination. The love of Christ does. And those who are sealed are the kind of people who say, my hope, my hope is in Christ alone. I belong to him. He belongs to me. And if my heart fails, look, that's fine. That's fine because I don't trust my heart. I trust my Savior. Look, that's why Jesus calls us to live and act in ways that often confront and go against our hearts. Because a human heart, it needs to be, it needs to be transformed, not blindly followed. And those who are sealed, they have this new calling to sort of resist the common cultural narrative that says your true self is being true to your own desires and your own will, ultimately. No, being true to Christ is how I can be most true to myself. And when you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, like, like those are the kind of things that, that you start to, to know, that you start to walk in step with, right? Number two, those who stand in the judgment are numberless. Verse four says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Again, remember, Revelation uses symbols and imagery here, especially when it comes to numbers. So what John is not saying is he's not saying that exactly 144,000 people will be saved, all right? So don't try and look around and be like, all right, she's probably going to make it, right? Like, he might make it. I don't know about that guy, right? Like, that's not, that's not how, you, how, you, how you work with that number. There are cults and religions out there that take this verse a little too literally, and their entire religious experience is one of constant anxiety because they're, 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 they're constantly just trying to, to work and be really righteous and really, really good, just working their tails off trying to impress God as, as if he could be impressed by mere creatures at all. The answer to that haunting question, who can stand, is not the really good people. It's not the people who get in step because, look, there are no really good people. The Bible says that. There's none that are righteous. No, not one. There are no polished people. As one theologian said, the church is not so much a museum of saints as it is a hospital for sinners. So then what does it mean to say that 144,000 will be saved, set apart and marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit? That number, 144,000, is a number that illustrates all the people of God who've been elected throughout time and space. It's not an exact number, but it's a symbolic number to tell you that, not, like, that basically uh, until every person is sealed with the Holy Spirit, the end can't come. Every Christian, every, every, every person who's going to be saved is sealed, then the end can't come. It's a number that illustrates all the people of God throughout time and space. How do we know that? How many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. How many apostles did Jesus train for his mission? Twelve. Another number, symbolic number used in biblical, what they call numerology, 
is the number 1,000. It's a number that means completeness, much like the number seven does in, in biblical symbols. But it's, it, it, it has to do with a completeness and, and like a, a magnitude. It's a big number, right? Like 1,000. And so you take the number 12 from the Old Testament nation of Israel, multiply it by the number 12, the new number of New Testament apostles that Jesus trained, and multiply that number, which is 144, um, by 1,000. Danny Lee, can you check my math? Uh, <laughs> 140, that's 144,000. So in other words, this number, 144,000, is the people of God in the Old Covenant and the people of God in the New Covenant combined, right? Basically just all the people of God. It's a symbolic number, not a literal one. And we also know that because in verse 9, uh, a few verses down, it says that these people are so numerous that no one can number them. You can't count them. No one can number them. Read that in verse 9. He says... After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Man, look, those two verses should make you so hopeful and so expectant and so excited about who you're going to see in the new heavens and the new earth and who you're going to meet on the other side of eternity. It should make you hopeful. Look, God's people are often described as a remnant, a small, narrow group, which in the grand scheme of just the ways of the world, like oftentimes it is that. But here, in verse 9, it's described as a multitude, countless in number. And he says they're going to come from every nation and tribe and tongue. You've got to understand that this would have been mind-blowing to the original readers who thought salvation was only attainable within the limits of their Jewish heritage, all right? Every nation, every tribe, every tongue throughout the centuries, every single one of those groups throughout the centuries is going to have people who've been chosen by God, saved, have their sins washed away. Heaven is going to be filled with saints of different colors, different races, different nations, different social classes, different languages. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be diverse. It's going to be this wonderful mosaic tapestry of, tapestry of just interwoven beauty that we're just going to marvel at. This leads to number three. Those who stand in the judgment will enjoy their standing there forever. Those who stand in the judgment will enjoy that standing forever. Read verse 11 and 12 with me. It says, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. 
Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this, this is our future. This is our future. Standing at the throne, blessing God, ascribing him glory. Because that day came, a day when sin will be no more, a day when evil will be no more, a day when judgment from our holy God will not fall against us, but against his enemies and ours. And we will sing when that day comes. And we also sing now, by the way, the reason we sing now is because we know that day is coming. In other words, it's with that reality in mind, the reality that we just read of, it's with that picture, that reality in mind that Christians can sing over their sorrows today. You want to know why the black church knows how to sing? Why they clap their hands and stomp their feet and lift their voices the way that they do? It's because in the days of the slave trade and the horrors associated with that, when few of those African-American slaves were very few were literate, and songs were often all that they had to rehearse the truths of this holy book, the scriptures. Man, when they had an opportunity to sing together, they sang their hearts out. They sang their hearts out knowing that the Bible says one day there's going to be an end to this slavery. One day there's going to be an end to all oppression. One day all that is evil and sinful will perish, the dead will raise, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, and it won't matter who the world once said that you were. It won't matter whether you were king or subject, whether you were enslaved or free, whether you were black or white, whether you were rich or poor. All who are in Christ will have equal footing feasting at the dinner table with Jesus Christ. And that makes the soul sing. And so Christians are singing people. We're joyful people. We're singing people, and we always have been. We always have been, and we always will be. We sing over our sorrows. We sing over our pains. Listen, we sing even over our earthly comforts, knowing that they don't bring us the eternal heavenly joys that await us. Who can stand? Those who are in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. That's who can stand. And look, if that's you, if that's you, if you're somebody who's been saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. If that's you, then you go ahead and you sing in the face of your troubles. 
You sing in the face of the enemy. You sing in the face of evil, sin, and death. Read this, read the rest of the chapter with me of Revelation 7. And as I read this, I want you to, to picture these symbols that, that, that John witnessed himself. In verse 13, he says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? John says, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, Those are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This, this is the eternal state of God's people. In other words, this is the joy we will be experiencing for all eternity if you are in Christ by grace alone through faith alone. Here in Revelation 7, we read that suffering and evil is revealed as something that is limited. It's limited. And here it's pictured as weak compared, <laughs> compared to the victorious Christians who are going to be singing for all eternity in the end. See, in our world, evil and suffering seems to never end, right? That's our experience. Evil and suffering seems to never end. But in the book of Revelation, we see that it's only a vapor. It's only a mist. It's here and gone in an instant. A couple nights ago, uh, my, my wife and I, we got babysitting, uh, and, and then we went to this, this neighborhood Halloween party. It's kind of like one of the big parties that like our neighbor throws during the year. And so we like all, we, you know, we got dressed up, wearing our skeleton suits. We showed up at this party, and, and, and we walked through the house into the backyard. And as soon as we get into the, the atrium, uh, like, because the way that their house is built, like leading into the backyard, like they've got this fog machine going, uh, like spider webs and, and these fake spiders. And I see like a few people talking there and the, 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 the fog machine was like laying on thick. And, and you could hear like the music bouncing and I'm like, oh man, this is gonna be a crazy party, you know? Like, like all the people are like right, right there in that, in that middle area. I could see like a few of them and the fog was so thick that I couldn't even see beyond that. And so like, you know, Alyssa and I go in there, we say hi to the people right there in the atrium. Like we grab, we go to the cooler, grab our drinks, and we head over to the back, uh, backyard when, the, when the, the fog like was kind of like spread out. And it's like, oh man, we should have, must have showed up early because there was like hardly anyone there, right? It went from like this really like eerie, like, oh, this is going to be awesome, like music blaring. Then we get through the cloud and it's just like, oh, like that was, there's actually nothing going on here at this very moment. <laughs> You see, Revelation reveals to us that, that evil and suffering is just a mere vapor. 
Right now, it feels like intimidating. We're surrounded by it. A lot of times you feel like it's hard to see through it, no matter how hard you try. But man, it, it, it's just a vapor. It's just a vapor. And before you know it, you're going to be on the other side. What we see is that throughout the book of Revelation, we find that evil itself is grasping for its final breath. It's thrashing around trying to destroy whatever it can. But the reason, the reason it's thrashing around is because it's dying. It's been defeated. It's dying. And those who don't belong to the Lord Jesus Christ are going to perish and suffer along with it. But for those that are covered in the blood of the Lamb, we will outlast. And our joy will outlast. The end of chapter 7 actually reminds me of the very end of the book of Revelation as a whole. I tried to show you guys early on that the book of Revelation is not meant to be read as like these consecutive events. This happens, then this happens, then this happens. But it's a constant unfolding of history. That's why we read about the, the, the four horsemen at the beginning of chapter 6 and, and the judgment that they were bringing and, and how that's actually happening right now throughout church history. And that's why I said now in chapter 7, when you got the, the four angels on, on horses and holding back the wind, it's those same four horsemen, Right? We're just going back more layer by layer by layer. And at the end of Revelation, the very last chapter, chapter 22, it says from verse 3 to verse 5, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants, the servants of Jesus, will worship him. They'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Look, this is the hope for those who stand in the judgment. You wanna know who's gonna stand? Those who will experience this hope forever. Life with God and with God's people, beholding his glory forever and ever in eternal, unending bliss. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.